Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well. And now here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. I was just talking about a book about sea monsters, and now you catch me out. Um, the uh, I spent too much on eBay last night. I had one of those evenings where I suddenly found books that I needed. And uh, as anyone who's seen my attic before, it means I don't need them anymore. <laughs> but it's properly break down the cultural differences in uh, various different places where sea and lake monsters have been observed. So look forward to that Sunday Science Q&A. Fantastic. Anyway. Welcome. I hope the day is going okay. Um, we're sorry we're slightly late. Uh, we've got a slight problem with Erica McAllister's uh, connections. Any of you who heard uh, our fantastically enjoyable, to me anyway, uh, episode of the Infinite Monkey Cage about uh, flies will know that uh, Erica was on that. And many of you wrote in to say, could you have given us some kind of warning because I was eating a sandwich? And uh, then we got information about flies, which was frankly vivid in people's imagination and uh, in its rather grotesque nature. Um, so, uh, but we are also joined as well by uh, Matthew Cobb. I'm going to uh, introduce him. He's been on the show a couple of times before and on many other things he's done as well. Um, Chersky with us. I will run through a few things before we actually get started. Uh, there's a, the new video is now up. Last week we were talking about uh, bubbles and the frothing of milk. And uh, Helen, now, if you, if you go onto Cosmic Shambles, and I will tweet it again afterwards, and I'm sure Helen will another as well, you can see all things about the different. Uh, the nature of bubbles with different milks, etc., uh, will be fully explained um, for those who are hungry for that information. We do use non-dairy milk at times, so those who are lactose intolerant are able to watch at least some of that particular film. Um, also, just quickly mention Patreon. Uh, we've got, uh, if you can support us for our Patreon, many of you do support us for our Patreon already, um, but if you are able to, that is fantastic because it does appear that it's going to go quite a long way through this second year of pandemic without us being able to do the job that most of us actually do. Uh, certainly Trent, myself, Josie Long. And your support means we can still make stuff and we're making more stuff than we've ever done before. I've got a new series called Tips for Existence that's coming up very soon. And uh, that's talking about finding meaning and purpose in what appears to be a meaningless and purposeless universe. And I've got people like Tim Minchin and Neil Gaiman and uh, Nicole Stott and Andrean and Francesca Stavrokopoulou and Anil Seth and many others on that. And we're also still doing the Uncanny Hour series. And if you want to hear a free sample of the Uncanny Hour series, that is actually up at the moment. That's about horror movies and strange ghost stories stories and things from television uh and it's uh, the alan moore and Stuart lee and uh, reese shearsmith and kayla janice and joanna neary and lots of others on that show so you can find that at cosmicshambles.com and uh, as usual marion keys by the way was a guest on this week's uh book shambles uh, which is up at the moment and she was utterly brilliant and i genuinely like entirely changed my idea of what her novels were like what they were about uh and and she as a person is just fantastically curious and uh, and passionate about ideas so if you get a chance to listen to marion keys episode of that let me just check the other things i haven't told you next week uh sharks we we're gonna do it this week we're gonna do it next week instead uh and we've got steve Batchel for that and shark researcher uh, dr georgia jones as well um also our friend uh, dr kevin fong who you may know from such shows as 13 minutes to the moon which is one of the greatest series if not the greatest series ever made um about the uh the flight the apollo uh, 11 flight 
right to the moon. Uh, Kevin is also a full-time doctor as well and has been very much working on the front line um, and is someone who's really worth paying attention to because, of course, there are so many um, columnists and, uh, and, and hacks and tweeters with all manner of opinions about what's going on in the pandemic. And Kevin is someone you should really listen to because Kevin is working in the hospitals. He knows what is going on. And go and have a look at his uh, Twitter because he's also put up a, a really good infographic basically explaining stuff about ICU uh, and other kind of intensive care situations as well, which are currently going on. So have a look at Dr. Kevin Fong's stuff. Um, and uh, Helen's Christmas lectures are available worldwide. That is everything covered. Helen Chersky, how are you? I'm doing very well. You just reminded me of my favourite thing about Kev, who's a good friend of ours, Kevin Fong. Um, and it is, and he told us this on stage a few years ago at Latitude when we we're allowed to go there. And we were talking about people who deny that um, uh, humans went to the moon. You know, the people who go, oh, it was all a fake and no one ever saw it happen. And they faked all the TV coverage and um, all of that kind of stuff. And he said that he was in the back of a taxi and the taxi driver was, you know, giving him all of this about, oh, they all made it up. There's nobody alive actually saw it. We're all just relying on this footage. And his response to this is one of the reasons why he's great. And it is one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard. He said, oh, Oh, do you think so? That's interesting. I think that's about the 1966 World Cup, you know. I don't know anyone who was there. I don't know. There's all this footage that's a bit grainy. Don't really believe it. And, and it's just, and he had a really, and it was just such a good way of, um, like, and then he said the guy went very quiet, as I remember. Anyway, so yes. That is such uh, that, a great, I, do you know what? I totally forgot about that. And that's so yeah. brilliant. He is such a good person. And as I said, do follow what, what he's saying at the moment and the reports he's giving. Because he is, he's just a really, uh, and also the first time we had him on Infinite Monkey Cage was when Brian Blessed was on as well. Well, and I what Brian Blessed called him when he stormed on stage because I know that some children may be uh, watching as well and I don't want you to embarrass uh, your parents uh, because they'll, they'll feel embarrassed. You'll be fine with the language Brian Blessed used but frankly in the radio theatre it was a rare event to hear that kind of language so passionately spoken but because it's Brian Blessed it was entirely allowable. Um, Helen, do you want to do your um, day in science now or should we do it halfway through? Um, I can do it now. Um, well, because it sort of leads, it leads into the topic we've got today. So I, uh, it is almost uh, 20 years since the Human Genome Project was published. Now, that was on February the 15th, 2001. And we kind of take the human genome for granted now that, you know, genetics and all these things we know about. And actually, but we're doing, to, we're, our topic today is about flies. And so I went back in history because the human genome was actually the third, as I understand it, animal to be sequenced. The first one was a roundworm in 1998. The second one was Drosophila, the fruit fly. And that is, that's where I went digging in the literature um, because it, you know, the, the human genome project is quite recent, but the fruit fly is like right in there at the beginning of so many genetic studies. And I went, there's this, there was this guy called uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan in the early 1900s who didn't believe in Darwin's theory of evolution. He didn't believe um, that the small mutations could add up and be selected to, to cause evolution. And so he did what a good experimentalist does. He um, went nosing about in the lab and his animal of choice was Drosophila because you can breed them quickly. They're everywhere, basically. And he's the one that picked up on that thing that we probably all heard about in biology class, the thing about the red and the white, white eyes and that there's an inherited characteristic uh, that you can follow down through the generations. And he found it was sex linked. He set up this thing called the Fly Room at Columbia University, which is just brilliant name. Um, and, and so he he, he went digging around. And so from being um, not believing in Darwin, Darwin's theory, he, just 10 years after that, because he believed his own experiments, he had he wrote the book that basically set up the new genetics where chromosomes were taken seriously and sex-linked traits were possible. And this idea you can have two genes next to each other that kind of get inherited together. That's a thing. And so what and he won the Nobel Prize for all of this in 1933 and I just I love the idea that he completely proved himself wrong and he's now you know recognized rightly as a, a very good scientist who did lots of things um and but everyone forgets in science that people it's not wrong until you've got your kind of ignoring the evidence and he didn't 
believe it intuitively he went looking for the evidence and he proved his own first ideas wrong and then he went on and you know was very public about those ideas and drosophila has been there's been six nobel prizes based on fruit flies work done on fruit flies they are fantastically useful the reason the genome is interesting is that we share i think about 60 percent of our genes with fruit flies so we're not that far off you know they're a useful study but um one of the things i i there is a brilliant book written about his lab and there were a group of uh, they were all men who were doing these studies on flies and breeding breeding them to learn about genetics and the book is called lords of the fly which i thought was just <laughs> excellent title so yeah so that's that's my bit of history that this the fruit flies um you know this simple thing that are everywhere they they were the way in to all of this genetics and the human genome project built on you know and lots of other genetics projects built on that work so yeah that's my bit of science brilliant and that was it was something the other week as well, which is unfortunately it seems that uh, a lot of the, the the science curriculum in school doesn't have enough time to talk about mistakes and when things are wrong and the importance of being wrong and that we will we'll, one day we'll do a, a full show just on those different kind of ideas curriculum. But that that's such a great story of that of, of being confronted with being wrong and rather than saying I'm going to double down, going oh this is going to create a very interesting story in my mind now, which is even more interesting. And um, we're joined by Erica McAllister, who is a senior creator at Natural History Museum, as I mentioned before. She was on the first episode of this series of the Infinite Monkey Cage, and it's I would say uh, of all of the shows that of the 150 shows that we've done, uh, it's certainly in the top five for the the <laughs> greatest amount of reaction. People really, oh. and, and uh, there we go. And uh, you think she was Cats. a physicist by that cat appearance, but she's not a physicist. <laughs> she definitely is. Um, but it is uh, that is. Um, uh, we, uh, this is great. I'm going to enjoy these Alfred Hitchcock style cameos from your cat every now Stop. and again. Yeah, well, he's, he's just Alfie off the table. It's because uh, I've got maggot. It's a <laughs> maggot. He's really addicted to the maggot, and he keeps because it smells nice to him. I don't know why, and so he keeps coming up to the maggot. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna have to throw the maggot away. Sorry. So, which is your show uh, and yes, tell? The hello. maggot or the cat <laughs> or something else? Oh well, I've got a, a proper, proper maggot, maggot, which is like. Um, and then I've got, uh, I've got, as everyone has, some really cool pictures of flies. So, oh, that's great. I'll... Can we see that? Can you show that again? That's fantastic. And how is yeah. that? That piece of artwork is it a drawing from a microscope? No, that's a photograph. It's a photograph of one of the flies that I'm studying um, in Dominica, and we're we're looking at the interactions because these live on bats, and we're looking at the interactions of these species. What species we have and whether they're host specific or whether they go on different different species of bats. So, but they're amazing because they obviously haven't got wings or halters or you know two out of the three things that we use to describe a fly. They just don't have those features. And this is what I love about flies is they're just so plastic when it comes to their morphology. They're really quite fun. Their genetics, Matthew could tell you all about and how exciting they are. But it's the end result. It's this external morphology that is just so freaky with flies that you can't help but love. And how big is it, that thing, for, in real, for real? I mean, I assume that's too big for a bat. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, they are maybe, I mean, some can get to about a centimetre. I mean, they're really big ones, but um, most of them obviously. They sit on the face, don't they? they yeah, well, the that, well beautiful, that beautiful um, image, um, image it's it. in the um, Wildlife Photography of the Year, uh, Putra, who did it. And it's this enormous bat fly creeping down the face of a bat. And it, it's the stuff of legends. Some people would say or nightmares. nightmares but, yeah, or nightmares, yeah. legends, same difference. And it's just really amazing. And, and most of them will stay associated with their bat their whole life they're you know they're completely adapted to staying on it they've lost all their thoracic muscles because they don't need the wings so a lot of them their head were not feeding pings back and so they really do have this kind of absolutely strange spider-like quality about them and when you're trying to pick them off the bat they do run around like drunk spiders so you collect these at 11 o'clock at night when you're quite tired, maybe had a glass of wine yourself, and you're trying to not stab the bat to try and remove these little bat flies off them. So they're, they're just really fun. And what, what's the relationship okay. between them and uh, the ones you get on birds, like on swifts and swallows? Oh, uh, very close related. They're very closely related. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's pushing the maggot off the table. Sorry. You know how cats do that, gently push stuff off the table? <laughs> Stop it. Um, yeah, well... The argument is that they're actually they're in the uh, four families within the superfamily, but 
people, obviously taxonomists are arguing that they're all just one family. And this also includes the tetsi flies. So you've got the hippobosids, you've got oh, the really? nyctera beards, you've got those. And what's amazing about them is they all give birth to live young. So, so the bat flies do as well? Yeah. So she's wow. got lactating glands on the inside. She's got tits on the inside, basically. And she will nurture uh, her young till it's just about to, like the larvae, is just about to pupate. And she gives birth to this pre-pupate stage, which then immediately pupates. So it's quite amazing. And they only, on average, I love it, on average they give birth to 4.5 larvae. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you can, on average, the thing is that after you've after you've said such weird things about their morphology, no one's really sure what that point five means. But my, yeah. question, my question was about like, so is this is this a parasitic relationship or is this symbiosis? Like, does the fly benefit the bat in any way, or is it just an annoying no. thing that follows it around? It's annoying. Uh, it could be annoying. I mean, there are some uh, flies that have a more commensal, a more mutualistic relationship with their host. So the bee riders, which are, again, equally adorable. They look like little teddy bears. They've basically got rid of all the features that look like a fly, and they hang around on bees, generally a queen bee. And they, the queen bee is a very messy eater. And what they would do, they would climb down and they would remove all the food around the mouth parts of the queen. So they are kind of like it's like a, a glorified uh, like a beer beard grooming kit type scenario going on. And it, it does no damage to the bee. I mean, the beekeepers association used to be like these are pests, these are parasites. And then they looked at it and went, oh, they're not really, are they? No. So the Varroa mite is, but these little bee riders aren't. Is this going to be the next hipster fashion? Bee riders. <laughs> so love I'm it. In your beard. <laughs> I just like the they, they, what they um oh, Matthew can you remember talking about these with the hydrocarbons on yeah. their uh, yeah on their so they mimic completely the chemistry of the bee they're on which we don't understand whether they are doing whether they're just smothering themselves in essence of bee the new perfume that everyone should be wearing or whether they're actually producing them themselves this is yet to be determined but it is a, one of the reasons the queen just doesn't care it smells like little yeah. bits of her running around and that's that's is... why the other workers won't care either so one of the things, yeah. one of the things yeah. in social insect colonies is that they all identify each other on the basis of what they smell stroke taste like they have these sticky waxes uh, on the outside of their bodies and parasites or sometimes predators uh, like butterflies that will uh, come in as caterpillars and then will the alcon blue, which will eat its uh, its ants ant ant a whole ant nest of uh, of ant larvae. It it smells, stroke tastes just like, like them. Um, just like them. And so the ants find this caterpillar outside. They say, "Oh, it's one of ours. Let's take it home." And then it just munches the, its way through their babies. <laughs> Thanks, Matthew, let's find out your show and tell. Your, I presume your show and tell is what you're wearing. Because um, well, that is a beautifully of, flamboyant really. entomological uh, shirt from what I can see. Yes, yes. There's, only, only there's, only, one, there's only one fly, which is some kind of gnat on it. I'm not sure if we can see that. Uh, but very, very entomological. Yeah, I've got an entomological show and tell. Uh, and I'm not sure where this is from. I think this is from the early 17th century. And it's a copy of... Uh, some woodprint woodcuts that were done by a man called Andrew Aldrovandi, who published this fantastic book uh, of insects at the beginning of the 17th century. And I picked up this this page for I think 10 euros in um, in Amsterdam because it had been apparently ruined. So here we are. And then, as you can see, uh, at some point in the last kind of 300, 400 years, <laughs> some child has got some uh, pink chalk, which was very much all the rage uh, back in the day, pink chalk, and has coloured them in. And I thought that was absolutely charming. So it's a fantastic bit of uh, a woodcut. And no, it, no flies here. They all seem to be uh, butterflies and yeah. uh, various other things. Um, although you can see, this is really interesting. This thing here, down here, is in fact... A, a silkworm moth that's been dissected and people got very interested in uh, how the silkworm moth produced silk and uh, one of my favorite uh, scientists ever Jan Schwammerdam he used dissections of the silkworm caterpillar to show that caterpillars and moths or butterflies are the same organism because until the middle of the 17th century people thought that when the, the caterpillar 
pupated effectively it died because if you snip it up there's a load of mush inside and the outer just like the caterpillar had come from mush so too the butterfly came from decay uh, but Shramadan was able to show that wasn't the case because in a in a silkworm moth, a silkworm caterpillar, which is about the size of your finger, you can actually see just before it pupates the soft uh, forms of the adult, the head, the wings, uh, the antennae. So he was able to prove that they were the same organism. That's fantastic. It's a lovely thing. Lovely thing is that that woodcut where when things become worthless because they're damaged, and I find that as someone who collects a lot of books, and to me, the supposed damaged book is often more, you know, like ex-library yeah, books, which are worth far less. But to me, there's something, I've got some lovely, like uh, I've got a, a first edition of, of Ursula K. Le Guin's um, Earthsea uh, trilogy. I have um, just started listening to that on audiobook today. Brilliant. Oh, series. no, we're going to prove series. synchronicity and destroy <laughs> the no laws spoilers. of physics again. No spoilers. <laughs> but it is, but it's, it's a, the book, you know, I, I picked up very, very cheap because it's covered in library stamps. But to me, that's an utter joy that it has the imprint in the same way on that, that woodcut, the fact that there is someone else's mark there. There is something else it's not just graffiti it's it's a anyway that's that's just my we, we i mean we our library is full of that it's people who've written across their own books which is amazing <laughs> and what we also do is is everyone who when they publish a new species they send us the pdf of the original copy and then a lot of people will take that uh that printed out pdf and scribble all over it saying actually i think the author's wrong there i think there's they've missed this diagnostic feature here so these themselves become as important we we, we really do have to rely on them and i love it like Swamadam was very good at doing that, wasn't he, Matthew? He just writ all, wrote all over his books. He crossed things out. He has this diagram of a mosquito's wing, only crap. And so he just stuck over it another drawing of the wing, which was better. And so, you know, all of these little edits and scribbles and things like that are really useful. Oh, Maybe. I, I've, John, I haven't got got it uh, uh near me but uh the tower of physics which as we know is a, is a is a book which some people get quite cross about because it's this kind of you know the, the merging of uh eastern mysticism and uh and and quantum mechanics and i think most physicists kind of a little bit of it but i have a lovely copy of that hardback which is just filled it must have been a reviewer's copy because it's filled with fury <laughs> and I remember thinking, I've got two copies of this book. Oh, I can't get rid of this one because it's got a very angry reviewer going, what on earth? This is a terrible comparison of mysticism and wave particle duality. Um, but the first we have chapter lots of... is a really good summary of thermodynamics, actually. That stands out. The first chapter is quite anyway carry on <laughs> I, I think it's a lot of fun i think it's like all this if you approach it with a lot of fun if you want to if you want to approach it thinking you're going to form some kind of religion of quantum mechanics or write a book on quantum yoga you know with the which does exist anyway let's not get down that uh, particular uh, vicious so let's start off biomimicry nick would like to know about biomimicry can i start with you erica because that's a i, I presume nick he said can you talk a bit about biomimicry which is a lovely open question and i presume it's kind of talking perhaps could we start at something like Batesian mimicry and just to give people an idea? Of... So, so this is the idea that a lot of insects will look like other in, well, a lot of animals. A lot of creatures, full stop, will look like things um, enabled to uh, avoid themselves being predated upon. So the classic ones that I deal with are the hoverflies. And everyone goes into their garden and says, oh, my God, there's wasps and there's bees everywhere. And I'm like, well, no, there's none. These are all flies. And so there's the idea that these flies are very harmless. They haven't got the stings. They haven't got the venom that most of the, the bees and the wasps have. And so in order to stop them being predated upon by the birds, they will therefore look like these other creatures. Um there's a little bit of like, I, I get a little bit sensitive about biomimicry because everyone just says the flies just always mimic the bees. And actually, when it comes to their habits, they are very similar. And there's a lot of features that have evolved because of their symmetry in their feeding habits. So are is it necessary to avoid predation or is it because there's some sort of co-evolution of the structures that they need? The hairiness is a classic example. Everyone's like, oh, the flies, they're so hairy because they look like the bees. It's no, because they need the pollen to stick all over them. That's why they're hairy. So, but there's many, many, many examples of biomimicry and different types of it. I, was, I, it just, say, was it butterflies? I'm trying to think. Yes, it was, the it was, was the, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. There's, there's two kinds. 
Batesian mimicry and Malarian mimicry, and I always get them mixed up. I'm sure you can remember them, Erica. No, I always, I always get confused because <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't like it, and <laughs> so I just try to like, yeah, because a bait and that's how yeah, it's so easy that, for me. That's just when you get a straightforward, you know, yes. like the, the hoverfly. You you look like a predator. You look like a predator, or you look like something that can sting normally. You use their their warning colours on, and sometimes their behaviour. So some of the hoverfly mimics are absolutely extraordinary yeah. in the, the movement of their abdomen, which makes them really look pretty pretty threatening. Moths do this; they'll look like all sorts of uh, hornets and stuff like that, uh, but they don't have the sting. And then there's the other kind, which is where you get completely different lineages converging on the same form that neither of them are, are they're taking it, they're kind of piggybacking on each other and they end up with the same. Again, you get this in, in butterflies. And that is that malaria mimicry? I can't remember. Look, people, Google is your friend. Just go on there. That's <laughs> M-U-E-L-L-E-R. Muller. There's a nice picture I'm wearing a fez. There's a, a lovely uh, obviously, the Pepsis wasp is the one that everyone is like the Schmidt pain index. You know about the Schmidt pain index. He's uh, this guy who let himself get stung by seventy-eight different species of Hymenoptera on bees, different parts ant, of his body. On different parts of his body to work out which was the most painful. And this is a scale that goes from one to four. I still, I just still giggles at that. And he worked out what the most painful stinging objects or creatures were, and it was the bullet ant. And it was the Pepsis wasp. Now, if you've seen the overposture of a Pepsis wasp, it's it's about so big, which may not seem a lot to you, but that penetrating your skin, it is very, very painful. And obviously, she's got she packs a punch. So, if anything is going to mimic, you mimic this wasp. And there's a, a completely vegetarian fly. It hasn't even got functional mouth parts as an adult. It looks, but it looks really hard. It looks like one of these wasps. And then alongside it, where they live, there's this uh, robber fly. Now, robber fly are highly venomous, okay? And they've got new venoms to science. They, they've got neurotoxins. They, you know, they're, they're, they can subdue their prey really quickly. And they have been known to take down a bird or two. So it's not exactly like their toxins aren't counted for anything. And yet the three of these things, they live alongside each other and they all look alike. And I just, you know, you just wonder why... The robber fly, did it just happen to be like that in the first place? And then it was like, well, it just works, all, all of us. And I wonder if, if we go back to this area, if we go back in like a thousand years' times, if every creature looks like this, <laughs> as everyone realises that eventually we should all just be dark, black and gnarly as this little area in California. Does it really, does it really this makes me think about though is, is there a version of this mimicry for every sense because we are we we humans are very visual creatures so we privilege vision over everything else but it occurs I, and i don't know you know you're the entomologist but the the sort of the the, the other senses why do, yeah, why are they not mim, are they mimicking each other for that other do. sense that's as what well we were because talking about earlier on yeah why they mimic smells i mean we, yeah. we've talked about the mimicking the smell Hydrocarbons. So yeah, the hydrocarbons. So they would do that. Um, I presume there would be some mimicry in touch, would there? I presume. Um, so. Well, yes, I guess so. So the many, so the the Alcon Blue, for example, this caterpillar that smells, stroke, tastes like the ants, and then eats their babies. It also stridulates. <laughs> it makes a little noise uh, like the ants are making. So it's it's imitating them all down the line. And the reason for that is fairly straightforward. Because if you get it the slightest bit wrong. You get eaten. Yep. So there's a very, very strong selection pressure on any, you know, needing to any any animal that isn't pretty convincing is going to get eaten. So and they if, can't move from this this kind of mimic this model, or that's it. And isn't this is what um, moths do with bats? It's the mimicry with the echo. Uh, okay, so they mimic back the back call, and they try and make it noisy. Now. Uh, I could be slightly wrong here because obviously I don't, uh, but they, I believe that's what they do. So they kind of frighten the bat going, oh, there's a bigger bat around here. I'm not going to worry about it. So they have evolved to be able to do this. And again, if they get that wrong, it's a short, short life for them. So yeah, so we've, it probably does exist with all the different senses. It would make sense to obviously as well, wouldn't it? Right. We're going to move on to question two. 
because uh, otherwise we're not going to get through all these things. This, uh, there's so many interesting things. There. That's why we normally do physics, not biology. Biology just opens too many, you know, very literal can of worms with Matthew sometimes. These, uh, now, I'm going to ask you this one, Matthew, because I know that you've looked quite often at kind of simpler brain structures. And uh, James wants to know, do we know whether flies and other insects dream? Uh, no is the very short answer, but I think it's a great question. Um, um, we know that they show what people uh, rather shamefacedly call neural correlates of sleep. Oh, they go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if you use stuff like that, they, they, they go to sleep at night. You, sit, you often see these fantastic photos of solitary bees clamping their mandibles onto a bit of, uh, onto a, a bit of grass, and they just doze off there. They're holding on overnight, and they just... They just sit there and they don't seem to react very much until dawn comes and then they'll they'll wake up and start doing stuff. So they're doing, you know, they're they've got little brains. They can imagine things. I suspect they can predict where things are going to be. They can predict where objects are going to be in a you know in chasing them or whatever or avoiding them. So there's no reason I don't think that they're not actually doing some kind of processing whilst they're in this quiescent state which looks to us like sleep. I mean, octopuses, which are um, clearly a bit smart, I mean, but they are just clever slugs, don't forget. But they're a bit smarter than your average fly, I'll give you that. But there are Oh, hang on, isn't that going to be quite contentious amongst... Uh, that's... Uh... What? Isn't that contentious? Isn't that conten fly people? Yeah, well, the thing is, octopuses are really clever. I, I mean, yeah, I, but, well, you know... They are. It's so an, it's, smaller ones. Uh, yeah. Are. I mean, you know, a pig's clever. Pigs can play video. Do you not see that? Yeah, they play yeah. video games. Um, so the the octopus, which is I'll accept, is cleverer than your average fly. Mm. Uh, yeah, but it is just a big slug, right? Just remember that. And when all these people say, "Oh, they're alien," well, you've got them in your back garden, except they haven't got eight. Their their foot, because those eight those tentacles, but their foot just divided. The foot, the bit that that snail or slug oozes along on, it's just now been divided into eight bits. Anyway. <clears throat> You'll have seen these, if you haven't seen them, go on the YouTube, sleep, Dreaming Octopus. And you can, you know, some octopuses can change their color quite astonishingly, mm. uh, their color and their the texture of their skin. And so somebody's filmed one of these things at night and it's sitting there and it doesn't care. So it's asleep and it is changing its color and it's clearly thinking about something. Now, that seems to me like dreaming. If a fly can dream, I'm not sure. I don't think it dreams of your Auntie Jessie turning into a lobster, but it's going to dream of something. It will kind of replay things that have happened, you know, swatting movements coming towards it or that spider it encountered and it wasn't very happy about. Uh, and it'll be doing something. We know that sleep is essential. If flies can't sleep, they die. Mm. So people have spent, done it. my mate Jean-Francois spent years keeping flies awake all the time it was absolutely exhausting you had to keep them stop them from dozing off um and they don't like it they don't do well so it, so what happens because I, I was reading adrian barnes who wrote an interesting book uh called nod which is a, a, a great very not nice, nice little novel where basically uh it turns out people just lose they, they can't sleep something has happened on the earth and and it takes us through those 11 days as people go totally insane and everything falls apart so i presume when your friend is observing the flies as they aren't able to sleep do we see erratic flying patterns inability to yeah, interact with food thing yeah, exactly what you'd expect. Their behaviour gets more erratic. They get rather sick, and then they they die. So they are, you need yeah, to. They're doing lots of these sleep. experiments in the space station. Well, the impact of microgravity and lack of sleep is happening because of the change in the circadian rhythm. And there's some lovely little videos of these flies that have been sleep deprived, and they are so groggy. They just because they just can't process it, so they're not flying properly. They're not doing all of these things. They just look like drunk flies which is exactly the sort of behavior they are drugged that's like when they so give lsd to spiders and see what webs they make you know, well, that was a bit disappointing <laughs> no, they just kind of then they end up just sitting in the corner and grooving on the universe but, on the, universe, but uh, <laughs> the, the 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 things we don't know why we need to sleep but it's clearly a major at least physiological requirement and potentially also neurobiological whatever whatever's going on at whatever level of an organism uh there's something there's something some reason you need to either recuperate or process or cleanse uh and flies like other insects are subject to that just as much as we are 
Brilliant. I'm going to throw our question from uh, Stanley. Uh, his five-year-old wanted to know this. Said, "Why is ice cold and fire hot?" So I suppose that's you know, why do we? <laughs> and of course, that immediately becomes, a, I suppose, a subjective thing to some extent. But that idea of why do we sense something? Why do we consider something to feel hot? And why do we? What is going on there? So the answer is that deep inside the molecules and atoms of whatever it is you're talking about, there is a lot of stored energy in vibrations. And so if you imagine that the inside of ice as a crystal and it's got lots of um, atoms that are sitting in a fixed uh, network with each other and they're all um, jiggling a little bit and there's energy in, in what they're doing. And if you increase that energy, the thing our name for it is that it feels warmer so actually temperature isn't a temperature is a measure of that movement and that's all it is so it's actually the case that an atom completely by itself in a vacuum cannot have a temperature um because it's not got anything to move it's not it's not got any vibrational movement it's not bouncing off anything um so so temperature is what we call the energy in a collection of atoms that are all jiggling bouncing off each other a little bit um and so the reason ice feels cold is that when you put your hand on it um what you notice is that so your the atoms in your fingers are jiggling about more than the ones in the ice and they tend to pass their jiggles that way and your your fingers your nerves feel that loss of energy and whereas if you put your hand close to a fire the energy coming from the fire, some of that's radiation, so it's a little bit different. But it arrives at your fingers, and you, 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 your nerves feel that you're gaining that that sort of vibrational energy, and so you feel that you're warming up. So, so that's it's it's energy right down at the atomic level. And actually, the most brilliant thing about this is a thermometer. So, if you find an old school, well, the really old school ones are mercury. Now they're they're. In fact, I've got one here because I am the sort of person, sorry, that has this. I've just dropped it. Um, <laughs> Yes, mercury. <laughs> so one of these things, there we go, you can see. So the reason that the, somewhere up here, the um, alcohol, because this is an alcohol one, goes up the thing, is that when it warms up, these atoms are jiggling about so much down there, they physically get further apart. That is what a temperature, you're seeing atoms get further apart because they're jiggling around. And it's that is that is what temperature is. It's that atomic scale um, we call it thermal energy because of these little jiggling motions. So it's a bit, that might be a bit much for a five-year-old, but something along the idea of temperature being about atoms and molecules jiggling um, in in their environment, that energy, that's that's probably the way to go to explain that one. I think it and, can be, I think it can be expressed through aspect, dance. There's, there's another aspect which takes us back to flies. So, I mean, it's interesting. So I would have given a different answer to that. I mean, that's all true, but what I would have talked about is the receptors, exactly the things on our nerves that enable us to detect that hot and cold. And these are a class of receptors called TRIP receptors. TRIP is TRP, and it stands for transient receptor potential. And it was first discovered in Drosophila, uh, in fact, in the Drosophila eye. So these are receptors uh, in the eye that enable the, the, the cells to respond to light. But they also, in various, there's a whole family of them, they also detect hot and cold. And one of the reasons discovered some time ago is that certain foods will activate those receptors. So if you think of peppermint and cumin, so cumin in curry and peppermint, they both, one tastes hot, the other tastes cold. Neither of them are hot and cold. And what firstly, those two molecules are uh, they're, they're mirror images of each other. So they're, they're identical structures, but they're mirror images. And they actually bind differently to these trip receptors, which is why if you're having a curry, it tastes hot. And if you're chewing chewing gum, it tastes cold. It's neither of those things. It's an illusion. Final thing is if you have if you are eating curry and you want to it's hot and it's hurting, don't try and get rid of it with water because that doesn't work. So beer's no good. You need to have lassa, which is what people in India, because of the, the capsaicins, which are the molecules that partly cause the problem, are soluble in fat. Uh, my question is, uh, I'm trying to use, my, ears. Uh, I'm trying to use my phone 
to get some questions in from Trent, but for some reason it is perpetually generating new empty tags, collecting new empty tag, and just says empty tag collected, empty tag collected, empty tag collected. I'm using a Chinese government phone as such, and uh, I would like to know if anyone out there can tell me how to stop that, because it is now beginning to hinder my uh, ability to read people's questions as they come in. So please, if you can tell me, of course, you won't actually be able to tell, so I won't be able to read it because I normally read it on my phone. Helen, do you know why my phone is collecting new? You're good on this kind of thing normally. I, my phone has never done any things, but um, maybe Trent can pass them on to me, and I can pass them on to you. If that, if that, maybe we can get there by uh, passing things along the chain, like passing notes in class, basically. <laughs> that would be very useful. Now, this one is, uh, I would say, a classic one that, Erica, you have probably answered uh, more often than once. I would say. This is from Spider67, who would like to know, do wasps serve any functional purpose? Yes, they serve as much purpose as humans do. Yeah. Um, um, but if you were talking about their ecological role, uh, they're amazing predators. Okay, so they're a gardener's best friend because they go around getting rid of a lot of the species that we would find, we would call pests in the garden so they are the females obviously it's just the females because they're the ones that have got the modified ovipositor the egg laying tube that is the sting they will go around attacking um as much as they can and this changes during the season so where because um i presume we're just talking about social wasps here because if we start getting into ignominoids and all of those we're a completely different world, which is more exciting to most people who study insects. But we just talk about the social wasps. She, uh, the workers will bring a lot of food back to their, their nests uh, for the, to uh, feed the next generation. So they will get rid of a lot of things, uh, aphids and a lot of the flies that you don't necessarily like and a lot of the all these other creatures. And then during the autumn, that's when they turn to the little alcoholics that's when they become the problem that people don't like them. Um, because during the autumn phase, the queen will chuck out most of the workers or they will die. So the females become jobless and they're homeless now and and they are feeding on loads of rotten food. So they become drunken, alcoholic females raging around your garden. And this is when they become slightly aggressive to us humans and start attacking our picnics and barbecues and things like that. So, yes, they do have a really important ecological role. And just, I mean, we we went to a wedding once and um, you half the wedding was entomologists and half was civilians, normal people. And you could you could spot them because the wasps were coming up to all the drinks and there was half the group screaming and the other half were just gently moving the wasps away and covering up their drinks. They're absolutely fine if you're just very gentle with them. And of I course, like as you, we know, course, like as you, we know, Erica, you brought those wasps with you. You don't like talking to non entomologists. <laughs> the only way to do it is release the wasp. I don't need to speak to him, we, him, we, him we, or her. Well, luckily, there was four hymenopterists there. So they were definitely the wasp whisperers. So they were like, <laughs> I was just talking to the flies. They were talking to the wasps. It was all great. Perfect. Please wedding. write a children's book called The Wasperer. I would love to, I'd love to read that. Um, <laughs> now, this Robin one, uh, I'm going to throw this at Matthew because this is uh, you, you. your recent book was a fantastic book about what we understand about the brain and how much we don't understand about the brain and where it's going to go. And this is from uh, Adam. And we were kind of just briefly mentioning about the subjectivity of experience. And he'd like to know, does the human brain hallucinate sound, the feeling of solid and the visual representation of our external environment? Outside the brain, is our world a silent, see-through ball of trillion? of tiny electromagnetic <laughs> repulsions giving us the illusion of a solid visual and noisy environment you have two minutes to from... <laughs> well bishop barkley had a, had something to say about this didn't he? he said well you know if a tree falls in a, an empty forest is there a noise uh, and the answer to that question is well yes obviously um and we can hear we know that on mars there's nobody on mars but there are noises on mars uh we can hear that from the recording uh, that's being made. So I think there's there's two two things. Firstly, clearly the world is not made of solid stuff um, in any way, shape, or form. Because although this table feels to me that it's solid, that's simply because of the strength of the atomic bonds that are holding it together and and that are holding me together. And in fact, most of as we know, most objects are in fact nothing. And in fact, most atom, the atom is largely composed of nothing. There's nothing in there. There's the, the clouds of potential or however people think of it these days. I like to think of them as little billiard balls uh, whizzing around each other. Uh, but most of it is just it's just nothing. So in one way, it's an illusion. 
But in another way, it's absolutely real. I mean, you can't put your hand through a screen, even though it's not solid. So it's, there, are, there are different levels of reality, and our brains have uh, adapted and are, have evolved in order to enable us to, to cope with that, which is one reason I find physics difficult, because, you know, I'm just a, a reasonably smart ape, and this stuff is a bit... We never met this on the Serengeti, you know. Mm. We didn't have any of this well, it's weird physics easier. stuff. It's as nice little billiard balls then you get to wave things it gets a bit uh, easier i think um robin i'm getting questions coming through for live so when you want some live questions oh uh, yeah please do please yeah but let's uh, let's have a live question that'd be great um well there's one here from ev guy who would like to know whether biting flies do or don't bite uh and do any of them use anticoagulants like leeches and vampire bats do biting yes. what what do biting flies bite? I guess that's perhaps the, well, the first well, question. So an adult fly. an adult fly cannot really bite. It can slice. Um so for example, if you've if you've been attacked by a horse fly, you will know the painful bite. Well, they call it bite, but it's got some slightly sharpened mandibles, but they are still suctorial. So they can't actually bite into their food. So it slices your flesh and laps up. Uh, when they talk about mosquito biting, again, you've got these stylets that form this long proboscis. At the very end, it's got a serrated edge, but it acts like a pneumatic drill and it gradually gets through your skin that way. So again, it's not really biting. So the term biting fly is a bit of misnomer. Uh, mosquitoes, yes to anticoagulants, because obviously she needs to suck up the blood. So she is definitely releasing that. And it is often that that causes the reaction that we don't like. Yeah, and it's also that that that's when she's gonna that's when she's gonna accidentally inject the plasmodium or the virus yeah. that will cause the disease. And on on the end of that style, there's, a, there's an astonishing video. Of one of these some some scientists have recorded this style, which you think of these things as being kind of rigid, but it's not. It's flexible. And on the end, she must have little taste receptors because she, she can does. Yeah, and get it right into the tiny capillary which is where the blood is and then and then absolutely it, it's, it's amazing the videos of this because you it's it, totally it, flexible i mean absolutely we don't think about this needle being flexible underneath our skin but it is able to go around and this is one of the things they're using for the development of smart needles the idea of developing these sort of needles to enable us to get round really sensitive organs or tissues underneath our skin so this this biting mouth part as it were that everyone hates actually might turn out to be a medical marvel and even the 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 vibratory uh, mechanism of her uh, proboscis is what we're using again for developing nice needles enabling to pierce your skin with so much less force so again this is quite an important thing we're thinking about mass vaccinations at the moment can you imagine how much nicer that would be with a mosquito mouth part <laughs> That is fantastic. I love the, the, the fantastic. I love the the the, the uh, images you place in our heads with uh, your use of language and mosquito mouth parts. There is uh, as usual Cronenbergian. Um, I uh, another question for this Matthew. You're going to wish you hadn't written that blinking book about the brain when I ask you this one. Um, <laughs> yeah, what is the simplest brain-like structure required to be able to manifest consciousness or awareness? No idea. Well, I bet. Well. Okay, awareness, that's, that's, that's probably, I mean, awareness depends what you mean, but conceivably just two neurons. So, you know, one of the things that people often think about is learning. So there's a great uh, experiment done in the 1960s by a chap called Adrian Horridge when he was in Cambridge, and he got a cockroach and he chopped its head off. Sorry about this. So he's got a cockroach and he in fact took its leg off and all it's got is its leg like this. And he pins the leg to a bit of wood and he attaches a wire here and a wire here. And if the leg goes down, then it gets an electric shock because it dips into some electrified salt water. And so this little circuit of just a few nerves will very quickly learn to keep itself out of the water. There's no brain involved, no ganglion, no nothing. It's just a series of neurons. It will learn positional information. So it's aware the shock and it knows what to do to stop it and that's no brain involved so i don't know there's probably about four neurons in there that's probably the bottom 
the, 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 the absolute minimum. Or you could even argue one neuron. So if you can see a, a photon of light or you can smell, you know, a cell receptor that can smell a, uh, an odor or can taste salt, is that aware? I mean, if you want to get, then get philosophical and say, yes, I've got to have a little maggot in there sitting, thinking about it, or a little mini-me, then the answer to that is I have absolutely no idea, and you don't have a mini-me or a mini-maggot <laughs> in your head. So maybe, I think that's the, I have no, really have, and not the foggiest idea. But you're making, definition. I was just going to say, those little boys I used to hate who lived on my road when I was growing up that would pull the legs off insects because they thought it was fun, they apparently all grew up to be entomologists in neuroscience. Yeah. Well, yeah. wait, 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 we don't pull legs off for fun. I, I just want to qualify this. I did get told off by a young who told me I was disgusting because I cut the wings off flies. And I was like, but they're dead, they're dead. I'm not doing it. Although I have accidentally pulled the genitalia <laughs> off flies when they're alive. But these things happen. But, we, you know, it's there's, there are actually some, <laughs> there are some really gruesome stories about early experiments with insects um there's a lot of gluing insects to things to actually yeah. uh, study them aren't there matthew and and what actually you're doing to drosophila heads right now is quite quite grim where they just remove the head to look at all and and attach all the uh, all the sensors to the heads to see what's going on there that's that's not politically yeah important. i mean I'm not helping my case here, am I? I realise. Well, let's just hope they're not self-aware. I think now let's let's hope that self-awareness debate means that as as you were pulling those genitals off, they weren't. Oh no! It was it was a pure accident. I felt horrified. I thought it was dead. It was, uh, and then I realised it wasn't. I was just honestly, it was horrific. I, I, you know, I don't like doing that sort of thing. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, if you're. If you're studying Drosophila courtship behavior, uh, one of the things you often do is to chop the female's head off. So she'll just stand there. And then the male gets very, very excited. She'll stay alive for about a day. Um, She tries to clean her eyes because she thinks it's dark. So she'll spend all the time doing this and there's no head there. And she'll just sit there. And then you watch the male running around, buzzing, getting very excited, trying to copulate sometimes with either end. Mm. Um, Sorry about. That. Yes, I think you should be. Um, so uh, the audience would like to point out that as soon as Erica started talking about mosquito bites, Robin started scratching his arm. <laughs> so, I don't oh, know I'm, I'm so uh, easily psycho. So I itch all the way throughout throughout monkey cage uh episode on flies <laughs> I, I was back to that urban myth that a fly had, you know there were eggs in my brain and they were hatching out and all it would explain a lot if that it, was going on i think when i when i'm not doing flies i'm doing fleas so i just my oh, mother absolutely. is just absolutely she just don't talk eric just don't talk i'm like oh look at the way they jump mum, and she's like that's it that's it they're everywhere i'm like oh Oh, I must say, I I know I've recommended this to to our audience before, but it's it's on YouTube. Seven Wonders of the World with Miriam Rothschild. Uh, It's an utter delight. And uh, I've just been listening to that recently and and she couldn't be more of an inspirational scientist. She's absolutely fabulous. She's amazing. She is amazing. And and again, she just just carried out experiment after experiment after experiment. And she was just for the pure joy of it. She wasn't paid. She didn't need to be paid. She was just just inquisitive. And it was like, wow. Plush is a bit bonkers. But she's yeah, she's great. Giving the, the little bits of chloroform to the fleas just to slow them down. You know, all of that kind yeah, of. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, this right is. Now. Oh, let's see. We've got we've got a question for uh, this is the hip intersection of entomology and religiosity. Uh, the Babylonian Talmud discusses whether the eating of parasitic fly worms in cattle is acceptable. I wonder if similar discussions warnings are found in other traditional religious texts. So does entomology find its way into do I, either of you know about that? I'll start with you, Erica, in terms of um, uh, scriptural um, entomology. In the Bible, uh, I mean, obviously the great plagues. You know, the locusts were an obvious one. When the locusts come, they eat all your food. Uh, there is, um, you're not meant to eat. Was it crust? Obviously, I'm not a religious person, so I'm maybe... Crustaceans not... are a no-no. The... Uh, crustaceans are a no-no, and insects basically are crustaceans, so we can get in that way. Um, I, the pigs being unclean, and a lot of that, they have terrible parasites in them. So you could have some with that, although they're not insects per se. There's the platy helmets and all of that lot, aren't there? So 
I don't know, Matthew. You, I you well, think of um, one I'm... which is on the Tate and Lyle team. Oh, where the flies that, like, are around the lion. lion. And I yeah. think that's they're Samson bees. or they're something, bees. right? They're bees. Well, they're, they're, bees. Well, they're not. They're, about... they're maggots. <laughs> yeah. So the yeah. ancient, people, ancient of all people, people of all sorts, both religious and non-religious, had all sorts of stories uh, about where life came from. It goes back to what I was saying earlier on about the, the silkworm. And everybody thought, Aristotle argued this, that big stuff was appeared in the usual way, the way we know, but little stuff, what he called bloodless animals, uh, and that includes flies and bees and all that stuff, that generate that generates from decay and so on. And what it says on the Tate and Lyle thing, which is from the Bible, is out of strength came forth sweetness. And the claim is that there's a, uh, there's a dead lion and a load of bees have mm. uh, made their hive in there. They wouldn't. And then you can get the, the honey out of there. But people like Virgil have fantastic recipes for generating flies. You get a cow, an ox, let's get an ox. You killed it. You buried it. You left it with its horns just poking out. You waited 30 days and then you chopped the horns off and a load of flies had come out. Is and that true? There's a chap called, yeah, probably true. There's a chap called Francesco Reddy in the 17th century who actually tried an awful lot of these things. You, there were recipes for generating ducks from uh, from <laughs> refuse piles and he would go out and he'd do, he'd do exactly what he was told and he did it three or four times and it never worked so this was really important because what you ended up doing and Shramadam was one of the people who did this was to show that all life comes from an egg everything has eggs including women Shramadam was also one of the people who was able to to show that in the late uh, 17th century so there's this kind of unification uh, of the natural world. And to get back to the religious question, Shvamadam's motivation, because he looks incredibly materialist to us, he thought that this had to be the case because God was perfect and the world was perfect. And anything that was kind of random, like stuff coming out of nowhere, that couldn't be true because that would mean that God hadn't created a perfect world. So although his method and his conclusions were materialist, his motivations were a very, very strange form uh, of Christianism, which involved Adam and Eve being hermaphrodites and all sorts of strange ideas. You were just talking about that uh, burial there of the bull with its horn sticking out. I immediately just remember the old Chick Murray joke uh, about the man whose wife dies and uh, he buries her in the garden and his friend comes around and says, why have you got a bum sticking out of the ground? He said, because I've got to have somewhere to park my bike. Anyway, there we are. That's an old Chick Murray joke. One of the great... Did find a cadaver, a human cadaver, actually in a tree. wasp uh, had built a nest in it. So there, there, I'm just trying to think of many examples of where actually where you get hymenoptera in corpses, and it's, it's a secondary host association. It was a perfectly built wasp's nest, actually well, within the rib cages. Because they like meat, but bees aren't yeah. really keen, are no. they? I think, you know, no. So I think I, I don't think there was any, ever a bee in beehive in a deadline. I will go right. Well, here's final question for you to deal with now this is something that uh we don't know who who sent this question in but it's something they've been wondering about since they were eight years old if a fly or a worm can make it alive all the way up into the trunk of an elephant my question is if we know the answer who was the scientist who figured it out and how did they get the grant money <laughs> so you uh, <laughs> what i've got here there you go. <laughs> this is a bot fly these are the larvae of a bot fly. And actually, this one comes out of a camel. But the same is the titillator. That's its actual scientific name, which gives you a little bit of an indication of, of how it stimulates. And you get them in elephants. And what they do is they go into the pharynx. And then when, when the maggot is ready enough to, when it's mature enough and it wants to leave, it irritates the lining of the nasal cavity and the mouth to cause the animal to sneeze. So it will violently sneeze out. And the camel botflies, there may be about 200 in the camel, and they will be snotted out in one go. A massive explosion of snot and botflies. Now, um, this was described by uh, Smith in, I think, 1918. I, I could be incorrect. But yes, uh, they, we have been studying these botflies for quite a while. That's wonderful. What a great way to end, because I think... It took us a long time to get to something that will put people off their tea. We got there a lot quicker with Infinite Uncaged, but now it's four o'clock. It's tea time. We've got the sneezing camel. We've got the bot flies, hundreds of them. That's wonderful. Um, thank
thank you both uh, for joining us today. Uh, that was one I, I highly recommend. Uh, Erica's book, two books on on flies, for, which is uh, natural history. They are uh, as well as the stories, which are utterly fascinating. The photographs are so mm-hmm. beautiful, and again, it's that close up world of seeing, you know, that beautiful microscopic work. Um, Matthew's book on the brain is is absolutely wonderful and so interesting in terms of understanding the human mind and and all of the work yet to be done about that. So highly recommend that. Um, Helen, uh, I will see you back next week with, uh, as said, next week's show is all about sharks. Uh, And that's uh, Steve Backshall and also Dr. Georgia Jones. And and Helen will be back with us as usual. Um, And a reminder of Patreon as well. Uh, If you can support us for our Patreon, that's absolutely fantastic. We make about four or five shows uh, a week, some of which are free to all, some of which we do have to put behind the kind of patreon uh paywall but we're trying to make as much stuff available uh as possible and uh i will if you're uh if you're bored tonight um i'm doing the the wolverhampton literary festival obviously it's all online and uh, at seven o'clock i'm talking to jed mercurio who is of course writer of cardiac arrest and line of duty uh amongst others and it turns out actually his his a levels were astrophysics and uh, or physics chemistry and mathematics and he has a very specific cosmological idea of the nature of plot and how long a series can run so if you're not doing anything at seven o'clock join me and jed mercurio that's the wolves literary festival and at 8 30 i'm going to be talking about my book i'm joking so are you with uh, susan murray and it's the first time of uh, the hundreds of events that i've done where i'm actually talking about the book with a comedian so i'm looking forward to that thank you very much everyone we'll see you next week bye, bye. thank you very much for listening Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.